Good morning. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go off of that announcement a little bit uh, because we're gonna talk about the testimony of a good conscience this morning. And so Peter gives us a passage. He says there is also an antitype, a shadow kind of thing, which now saves us: baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So we're going to have our baptism next Sunday, and Jesus commanded us to be baptized. It's taught in, it's, we see it in the book of Acts, and it's taught in the epistles. That's why we do that. It's something that's important for you to, to have done as a believer. So if you're, not, if you're a believer, you haven't been baptized yet, then, then really, in, in, for the sake of your good conscience before God, you need to be baptized. So can you hear an amen? If you haven't been, you don't need... You, Sign up helps a little bit, but really, if you just come to that picnic last week, last uh, summer, and this is our annual picnic, I think we had maybe 12 to 14 people signed up. We wound up baptizing 24. So it's just really fun. It's, we're, we're, we're just being in the lake, and as, if you don't sign up, that's okay. Just come, because it's, the, it's important, first of all, and it's a blessing, not only for you, but for people that are watching your family. So that's my little plug following up. So next week, there is a Saturday service. There's only one on Sunday. So at 10 o'clock, and then we'll go to the picnic. Okay, so Acts chapter 23. Let me intro a little bit into this. We're, we're on this whole uh, seven, this 10, the, the, Okay. <laughs> the last 10 chapters of the book of Acts, I've given a, a serious title of going and doing the making of a testimony. The first three chapters we looked at was we're really focusing on the going and the doing. The last seven that I'm really excited to be able to share with you, some of the thoughts on my heart, is the making of a testimony. So this morning we're talking about the making the testimony of a good conscience. So your testimony is what happened to you. It's your story. It's unique. It's human. It's real. And it's what your hope is, hope that, that you're understanding your story is a very important story to God. You are valuable to him. He loves you. So my hope and our hope as believers here in the church is that you have welcomed Jesus in the fullest measure of the gospel. In other words, you're either for him or against him. So the fullest measure is there's no less. So in coming to Christ in the gospel, he now is your story. And he become not only your story, but your song. And that's what happens when you come to know Jesus. He becomes the song of our hearts. Oswald Chambers, in his classic book, My Utmost for His Highest, a devotional, he said this, quote, You will never cease to be the most amazed person on earth at what God has done for you on the inside. And that is so true. It's amazing what God does when he gets a hold of our lives. So that is so true. But if it's not true for you, again, I'm praying that it will become true for you this morning. So when we're done with our time in God's word where God will speak to us, and he'll be speaking to you also if you don't know him yet, he's going to be there and sort of nudging you that you really need to get right with him. He loves you and he came to die for you. So if that's not, your, it's not true for you, for you yet, I hope that today it will be. And that's our prayer. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to Christ this morning after we look at his, listen to his word. So, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. 
This is my story. This is my song. It's praising my Savior all the day long. That's what we hope, that you will begin to understand that song. So as we're in Acts chapter 23, again, we're going to go back a couple verses. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, or your device, if you'll read along with me, Acts 22 to run into 23, verse 29. Then immediately those who were about to examine him, that's Paul, withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, this whole tumult, he released him from his bonds, Paul, and the commander, the chief priests, and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So let's get up to speed on our story, but if we, let, me, let me pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would take and give us ears to hear now as you speak to us from your word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we thank you, your word is alive and powerful. We thank you that you speak to us, you've given to us, preserved it for us, that when we read it, we're not just reading words, we're not just reading a book, we're hearing from you, the living God, and we love that, and we thank you for it. I pray you take the things I've prepared, break them this morning for us, feed us, Lord, we're hungry, we're looking to you now, we're listening to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we pick up the story, Paul has just been rescued from a very zealous, emotionally charged multitude of Jews who were intent on killing him. Were it not for a group of Roman soldiers intervening, he would have been a goner, for sure. The commander, trying to find out what caused all the ruckus, was about to scourge Paul until, finding out he was a Roman citizen, he immediately did a quick rethink, because you don't do that, you will be the one that will pay the price. And so the next day, he brings Paul down before the Jewish council. Now, the Jewish council is the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard that word, which simply means sitting together, the Sanhedrin. It was the highest Jewish council in the first century. This council had 71 members and was presided over by the high priest and included both both main parties of the Jews, which were the Pharisees and Sadducees. Since the high priest, verse 2, it's Ananias, presided, the Sadducean priestly party, which would be the liberals, dominated the council, although there were also Pharisees that were members. I want you to note that it was this council, under the leadership of the high priest Caiaphas, that plotted to have Jesus killed. They conspired with Judas, used false witnesses to condemn Jesus, then sent Jesus to Pilate and pressured him into pronouncing Jesus' death sentence. It was this council. So in Acts, they're up to just as much no good as they were in the Gospels. They warned against preaching Jesus. They arrested Christians, threatened Christians, and killed Christians. They were really grossly immoral. Paul was not killed because God was not done with him yet. That's why he's still around. Ironically, the former Mr. Pharisee himself, Saul of Tarsus, now known as Mr. Jesus' follower, Paul the Apostle, probably sat on this very same council. That is ironic to me. He's on the other side now because he knows Jesus. Now, those who are plotting to kill Paul come to this council. Let's pick the story up, if you would, in verse 12, and I just want to read it. 
And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with, notice, the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Verse 16. So in Paul's sister, that would be his nephew, and really, this is about all we know of Paul's family. He probably was married at some point because he was a Pharisee. But as far as the Bible, any information, this is about the only information we have about Paul's family. This is his nephew. Heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, said, take this young man, and that word would probably be, he's about 20 to 30 years old. Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And it's interesting, uh, they probably had a long time of not eating and drinking because they didn't kill him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of night. Quite an entourage to take one man to Caesarea. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So you know it was a pretty serious threat that they were seeking now to get Paul out, of, out from under. Verse 25. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death and or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you. And also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they they were commanded, took Paul, brought him by night to to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had, had read it, the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So I want to talk this morning about the testimony of a good conscience. Three things I want to give to you, three thoughts, and then three bullet points under each one. I want to talk about the facts of 
of a, of, the good, of a good conscience. I want to talk about the faith of a good conscience. And I want to talk about the freedom of a good conscience from our text. So the facts of a good conscience. What intrigues me in this, in this and not only this, but the next chapter, are simply two verses, one in each. Notice in verse 1, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said this profound statement, a weighty statement. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What a, what a weighty statement that is to make. Now notice 20, Acts 24 and verse 16. He says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So he makes this statement and it really intrigues me. And that's why I want to talk about the testimony of a good conscience. For Paul... What was of eternally greater significance was not the judgment of the council or the judgment of the Sadducees, Pharisees, priests, and elders or the judgment of the commanders and centurions and soldiers or governors or any other accusers. That was not significant to Paul when compared to the judgment of his own conscience before God and men. That is what was so significant to Paul. So as we read chapter 23, in fact, as we read the Bible, really, but in our chapter this morning, running in the background is the invisible working of the conscience, actively arbitrating the thoughts of every person, everyone that was there, the conscience was arbitrating what they were hearing and how they would be responding. Romans chapter 2 and verse 12 says this, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are justified in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. He says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do those things contained in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. So even though they never had the Ten Commandments or any of that, God has written on the hearts of his created beings, humans, the law. There's a consciousness about what is right and what is wrong. It's there for all of us. Now, verse 16 says this. In the day, in other words, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men, how? By Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In other words, the gospel is the full revelation of God's plan to deal with sin. And there will be a judgment coming when all will be judged. We'll look at that a little later on. All will face the judgment of God according to the things that they've done, whether good or bad. So three things argue for the existence of God. Creation, conscience, and Christ. The conscience tells us, there's these laws written on our hearts, that there is a right and a wrong. And let me say this, if God didn't give that to us, then where did it come from? You see, if I'm deciding what's right and wrong, then you can't tell me it's wrong. And thus, the arbitrating of the conscience is what is known to be right and wrong because God put it there. 
We have to understand that as far as the facts of a good conscience. That written in the hearts of every human being is an understanding there is a a moral law of what is right and what is wrong. And so these three C's of biblical apologetics have been called the rational and factual defense of the Christian faith, which they are. Creation, Romans chapter 2, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. You look at creation, and it's foolish to say there is no God. Conscience is the second, and Christ, Jesus coming, praise the Lord, he came, and now we have the full revelation of God's plan to deal with the problems that our conscience is continually arbitrating, what is right and what is wrong. So what is the conscience? A mother was helping her son with his spelling assignment and came to the words conscious and conscience. When she asked him if he knew the difference between the two, he responded, "Uh, sure, mom. Conscious is when you are aware of something, and conscience is when you wish you weren't. (laughs) Amen. That's the deal. (laughs) In English, the syllables conscience are two, with knowledge. It's the same in the Greek that we're reading, that our Bibles are translated from. It has this idea of with and to know. So it's knowing with or co-knowledge with oneself, conscience. It's having knowledge, including understanding of the morality of that knowledge. It's a noun. The psychological faculty that distinguishes between right and wrong either afflicts or comforts the person depending on their actions. So the word conscience is not found in the Old Testament, but let me say this, the evidence is found throughout it. Right from the beginning, Eve ignored her conscience. Uh, Joseph's brothers saying to one another, we are truly guilty as they're standing before Joseph unknowingly and they're, they're talking back not knowing Joseph understands them. The brothers said to one another, we are truly guilty for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. We wouldn't listen to it. They sold his, their brother into slavery. The conscience was working throughout the Old Testament. David, after cutting a little corner off of Saul's robe in the cave there, he was convicted and it says his heart troubled him. That's the conscience at work. When David numbered the people, moved by his own, by, it says he was moved by Satan, his own, his own pride, he numbered the people. It says that David's heart condemned him. That's the working of a conscience. It's not recorded that Jesus ever used the word conscience, but he continually appealed to it, challenging attitudes as well as actions, exposing hypocrisy, Double standards, religious nonsense, and sinful hidden agendas. And try, as they did, to silence it, eventually to silence him. The voice of conscience was and is always magnified significantly in the presence of the holy, sinless, and perfect Son of God. In the presence of a holy God. It's amplified, as it were, eternally. It's Peter falling before Jesus saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's the conscience before a holy son of God. 
It's Job repenting in the presence of God and saying, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job was, God boasted about Job's righteousness, but in the presence of God, as he's being himself uh, corrected by God, he says, I, I repent. It's Isaiah, the prophet, doing the same thing. As he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Romans 3.23 tells us why. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, what about the conscience? The facts. Number one, conscience is a gift from a good God. Conscience is a gift from a good God. Someone said, well, the conscience gives understanding and awareness of what is right and wrong. That's a gift from God. Conscience, someone said, is the great beacon light that God sets in all. Conscience, uh, English actor Peter Ustinov said, is, quote, a twinge of conscience is a glimpse of God. And I like this one the most. Conscience is the soft whisper of God to men and women. Pastor Chuck Smith tells the story of his grandson, who one night asked his mom, Chuck's daughter, how he can know when God is speaking to him. His mom said, well, son, when you were playing with your dad's golf clubs today, was there a little voice reminding you that you knew and you were not supposed to be playing with dad's golf clubs? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, she said, that was God speaking to you. So his mom turned off the light and left the room. A few minutes later, his son calls, hey, mom, can I talk to you? So she comes back. And he says, you know, mom, God speaks to me an awful lot. <laughs> and I would have to amen that. God speaks to me an awful lot. You see, a good conscience is not only a gift from God, a good conscience is a guide for our good. That's what a, a conscience, a good conscience is a guide for our good. It's the witness borne by, of, to one's conduct. It's the faculty by which we apprehend the will of God. It's the sense of guiltiness before God. It's the process of thought which distinguishes what's morally good and also what's not good. And then it prompts to do what's good, a good conscience. Conscience is our moral intuition. It's that part that passes judgment on our own state. The conscience does not argue reason. It just sends out a signal. The conscience works by warning us before we make our choices. And I have found continuously that God is always faithful to warn me before I do something I shouldn't. It warns us as a friend before, but then punishes us as a judge afterward. But that's a good conscience. Charles Stanley likens the conscience to an alarm system. I liken it to radar. When anything foreign comes flying in, foreign to what we know is right and pure and holy, when those desires begin to invade, the radar of the conscience sends the signal, intruder alert, intruder alert. Don't let that come. 
James says this, chapter one and verse 13. Some of you know it well. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. In other words, it's something that I really want to do. Then when desire has conceived, in other words, now what I really want to do, I'm going to do. It gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, in other words, it's nurtured and allowed to live. Full grown, it brings forth death. You see, the conscience we're given is to help us to understand, don't let that conception take place. Don't, don't, in other words, the thought comes, it needs to be dealt with. We'll look at that in a moment too. Now, the importance of paying attention to the warning system is before we do something. We're having our summer sessions. Uh, James mentioned those. This Wednesday, as he also mentioned, the topic is pornography. The first step we must take as the church is to talk about it. Jesus died on the cross so we can. And so silence often is very detrimental to a good conscience to speak about it. And so that's the first step we're taking in these preliminary things of our summer sessions. And this this Wednesday, it's about pornography. So our goal is that they will be helpful and hopeful because that's how God operates. So there's testimonies that are so helpful, but we also know they're also hopeful. In October, we have a brother coming to do a half a day Saturday seminar. The title is Homosexuality, How to Respond. Now, Jeff Simmons is the director of Tower of Light Ministries. This seminar, Charlotte and Adonis, a brother from our church, went to, and she said it was excellent biblically solid, and to give us understanding on how to deal with these issues that are so prevalent and so much in our society. And there are those who struggle with these specific sins. But the reality is, we all struggle with sin, and all sin is sin. That's the truth. That's the reality. So we know it's not simple in our own dealings with sin. We know it's an ongoing battle in fact, Paul to, the, to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 said this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what's a stronghold? I was wondering about that for a long time. Then I, someone said to me, well, it's a stronghold. I said, well, okay, I just figured out what a stronghold is. So he says there, pulling down strongholds. Things that want to get a hold of our lives. He goes on, verse 5, casting down arguments, the conscience, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, conscience. Bringing every thought captive, conscience, to the obedience of Christ. So in other words, I want to do what's right as I'm wrestling with these temptations of sin. I want to do what's right. So he says there, bringing every thought into captivity, the conscience, to, to the obedience of Christ. And then he says, and being ready to punish all disobedience once your obedience is fulfilled. What's he saying? He's saying the only uh, way that it be, can become uh, obedience, the disobedience to be taken care of, is by obedience. 
Oh, I wish it was just I could think I was being obedient. No, no, no. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Once we then make the right decisions, once God makes, does those things in our hearts and gives us freedom and victory, now the obedience is done with. And oh, how glorious it is when God deals with us in these levels of deep trouble and deep battles in sin in our lives. And he begins working and working and working in our lives. And eventually he sets us free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. A slave cannot free himself. We need someone to free us from sin. And only one person can do that. It's the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross and for us. And I go, yeah. So we know it's not simple. It's a battle. But we also know that sin is never satisfied. Never. And so we know that sin left unchecked will eat us up and spit us out. That's what happens. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And that's the truth. Love that quote. Conscience, and this this is probably my favorite picture of conscience, the facts we're looking at. Conscience is a three-cornered thing in my heart that stands still when I am good. But when I am bad, it turns around and the corners hurt a lot. That's a good conscience. If I keep on doing wrong, the corners wear off and it doesn't hurt anymore. That's not a good conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. You've heard that. And the idea is that if you go by your conscience, you'll do the right thing. But hold on a minute. It depends on the condition of your conscience. The Bible has, that I know of, seven different names, uh, different, um, what's the word I want? Describes the noun. There it is. Of the kind of mind, a conscience. First of all, there's a weak conscience. It's not strong enough to distinguish clearly between the lawful and the unlawful. Second Corinthians chapter 8. There's a defiled conscience. It lives under the condemnation of believed or perceived sinful behavior, either ignorantly or intentionally. So it's become defiled. There's an evil conscience which remains resolute to sin against knowledge, evil. And then there's a seared conscience. The word is cauterized. It's rendered insensitive. It no longer works properly. There's spiritual scarring, if you will. It's desensitized to moral pangs. That's the, what, the, what the Bible calls the seared conscience, where the corners wear off and it doesn't hurt anymore. Those are not good consciences. A weak, defiled, evil, or seared conscience will not be a guide for good. The conscience is like a compass. If the compass is faulty, you'll quickly get off course. If a man has made up his mind that a certain wrong course is the right one, the more he follows his conscience, the more helpless he is as a wrongdoer. Our consciences are dulled by progressively justifying sinful actions. No one starts off to be an addict. No one starts off to be in bondage to sin. I think I'm going to go get in bondage to sin. No, it's those choices along the way that bring us into bondage, that cause addictions. 
we can, ourse- we can we con ourselves into thinking we aren't doing anything wrong. And then our, over time, we'll al- we allow for things that ultimately lead us to a loss of all control. And we've all seen cases of that, maybe even in our own lives. Listen, God has provided a full cleansing for any and every weak, defiled, evil, or seared conscience at the cross. At the cross. Hebrews chapter 9. How much more. It's so profound what God has done for us. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I don't care what condition is in, the cross is God's power of cleansing it and bringing it into a place of a good conscience, a strong conscience, a pure conscience. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. First John, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what does that mean? To, um, to walk perfectly? No, I'm walking honestly. As the conscience speaking, I'm being honest in my mind about what is right and what is wrong. That's walking in the light. It exposes. If we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and truly, out, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what? All sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some, all of it at the cross. Are we not so thankful and humbled that in all of our musings and sinfulness and bad choices, God has provided through his son the forgiveness of all sin, all unrighteousness, cleansed and washed as we have been. The final one on this, a good conscience is governed by a good God, which takes us now to the second thought I have on this. And I want to look at the faith of a good conscience. First of all, it's govern, our conscience is governed by our faith in God. In other words, it's governed by his word. Can you have that up there, please? Governed by our faith, it's faith in the revelation, his word. So our conscience, governed by God, is governed by our faith in God, and particularly his word. Paul said in verse 5, it is written. He's going to the word. This is what God's word said. And in that, he's actually, he's, he's acknowledging he was wrong. It's written. A misconception that seems to never go away is the idea that conscience is the final arbitrator of what is morally right. Listen, it is not, and the Bible doesn't teach that it is. Conscience is given to apprehend what is right, to apprehend the law of God. The word is the supreme rule of conscience, our thoughts, desires, words, actions. All that we are is subject to the authority of the law of God. Therefore, his law is the rule of our conduct by means of our conscience. 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to him, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, 
have turned aside to idle talk, understanding, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they espouse. So it's possible to stray from a good conscience. But it's interesting, when talking about a good conscience, Paul connects it to faith. And what can happen when a person strays from it? What happens when a person rejects it? Or what happens when a person no longer holds it as sacred? So he wrote to Timothy, said, some have rejected concerning faith, have suffered shipwreck. That's possible. Rejecting it. To Timothy again, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. That is, we must hold it as sacred. God's revealed to us what is right and what is wrong. We believe it. God has revealed to us the means by which we can live right and we apply it. Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine. In other words, what is right. For reproof. In other words, what is wrong. For correction. In other words, how to make what is wrong right. And for instruction in righteousness, that's how to keep what is right, right. That the man of God may be thoroughly, may, may be made complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's God's word. I talk about this often, and we need continual reminders. We never want to soothe the conscience when God is seeking to wake it up. He says, Arise, wake up, you sleep, and Christ will give you light. We never want to soothe the conscience when what God is doing is wanting to awaken it to what's right. Secondly, the faith of a good conscience, faith in the revelation is what it's faith in the resurrection. He is our hope. And Paul is, a, is talking about the resurrection. Jesus Christ died and lives again. That's our hope. It's governed by the resurrection of God's son, Jesus Paul said in verse 6, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. Ultimately, no counsel on earth matters. Because there is only one to whom I must give account. He who died and rose again for me. In 2 Corinthians, and Paul said that in Acts 24. Strive and have a good conscience without offense. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, Paul wrote this to them. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Our, my aim is clear. Our aim is clear. Paul's aim is this. It's clear. It's to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well-known to God. And I also trust are well known to your consciences. So he's saying, God knows. I'm going to stand before him. That's what matters. He's the one who matters. And so whatever his judgment, whatever be his judgment of my bad, and I say this soberly and thankfully, I know because of the death, burial, and resurrection of my Savior, I know he will wipe away every tear, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. I know, whatever the bad, it's going to be ending. 
even at the judgment seat of Christ, where I think much of what I've done will probably be burned up. It wasn't done for the glory of God out of right motivations. There'll be some that I believe will be rewarded, but there's going to be those bad things. But God's going to wipe away every tear. It's going to be over at one point. That's the glory of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is our hope, even in the things that are wrong. But then also, whatever righteous acts, whatever good I have done in this life, I will be granted to be arrayed in them like fine linen, clean and bright, adorned by him, Jesus, beautiful in his sight, loved and chosen by him. And I, and I will be glad, why am I crying then, and rejoice and give him glory for the long-anticipated marriage of the Lamb has come. Revelation 19. That's what we're looking forward to. And our righteous deeds are going to be like this linen, and it's going to just beautify what he has done for us as he sees us, and the marriage supper long has come, and we're going to be eternally his bride. Wow. That's my hope. That's our hope. It's faith in the resurrection. That's what needs to govern the conscience. Realize, yeah, bad and good, but Jesus is taking care of all of it for us. We're going to be rewarded for what he did. I say, what a deal is that? We trust him. We do what he's called. He empowers us. He gifts us. He strengthens us. We do it, and then he rewards us. He said, I love you. You're my bride. You're my bride. And when I think of that day, when I will stand before him, my assurance is Christ. My aim is clear. My assurance is Christ. He promised he would raise me up in glory. He will keep his promise. And so the hymn, I will stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Fantastic. Three, faith of a good conscience. Faith in our relationship, his love. And this is the whole working, our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter five, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, been, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, his resurrection. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And listen, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That's what the Holy Spirit, he's pouring out God's love for us and our relationship with him. Final thought is the freedom of a good conscience. For Paul, what was of eternally greater significance was not the judgment of any of his accusers, but the judgment of his own conscience before God and men. 
His is the testimony of faith and hope in the love of God. His is the testimony of living in all good conscience before God, of striving to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. You read Paul's letters and you learn that his testimony, which is also God's word, was not the striving of having to rid himself of guilt and shame, but of Jesus providing for him through the cross to have a cleansed, clear, pure, and good conscience without offense toward God and men. His testimony is a testimony of true freedom of conscience in the very presence of a holy God. That's his testimony. Freed from guilt, freed from shame, freed from condemnation, freed from fear. Not that he was never guilty and never ashamed and never convicted, but that he was always applying the blood of Jesus and cleansing his conscience from all sin, believing God's word, his hope anchored in the resurrection and his relationship with God through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That was Paul's testimony. Someone said a clear conscience is usually usually the sign of a bad memory. Now say that again. A clear conscience is usually the sign of a bad memory. I don't remember that. But listen, may I correct you? No, that's not true. For the Christian, a clear conscience is the sign of a good memory. Remembering every day, in every situation, that Jesus has paid it all. What he did for me in my, for me in my life and my relationship with God is he took care of the problem of how to have a good conscience. And so in closing, real quick, what, are, what, what, is, what is freedom look like? It's free to be direct without being defensive. And that's what Paul did as he stood before. They, they slap him. He says, you whitewashed wall. What are you, you know? And Paul was able to be direct with them. And that's the freedom of a good conscience. I'm going to say what needs to be said. And that's what Paul did. He called them out for the wrong. But listen, in the same place, he also acknowledged and confessed his wrong. See, that's a clear conscience. So we're free to be direct without being defensive. How defensive do you get at times? We all do. Secondly, the freedom of God is free to be discerning without being devious. As you look at Paul in verse 6, Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees. So he's going to take advantage of that. He was not being devious and trying to cause dissension to escape judgment. No, he's being candid about his belief in the resurrection. And that's what a freedom of a good conscience does. That we can be discerning without being devious. I'm not trying to, it's not a sales job. It's not a snow job. It's salvation that I'm talking about. I want to talk to you about. To testify to the resurrection and to testify to the coming judgment. That it's coming. And Paul wants to warn them. He told the Colossians, warning every man and teaching every man. I present them complete in Christ. Paul's, hey, there's a judgment coming. When Jesus will judge, we'll look at this next week. The third final thought, it's free to be discouraged without being defeated. Notice verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, which tells me he wasn't. He was discouraged. And we find that There are these few times when Paul is discouraged. And we all get discouraged. But let me say to you, Paul finished victoriously, and so will we because of Jesus Christ. There are those times we we are discouraged, and that's just reality. He said, you've testified to me in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify in Rome. And Jesus did that. 
And so we get discouraged. And the book of Acts gives us this whole thing of testimony. But let me say, mixed in with every, in fact, uh, the week, this Wednesday is on pornography. The following one's on depression. And there are many different degrees of that. But you're gonna, we're going to talk about that a little bit also. It needs to be talked about. But we all get discouraged. So our relationship with Jesus is the only hope of a good conscience. But thank God, because of him, we can all experience a pure, clear, and good conscience because of him. Would you bow your heads and pray now as I want to give an opportunity for someone here that, or maybe more than one, and we're praying that. We've been talking about this whole thing of our conscience before God. And you cannot cleanse your guilt away. You cannot remove all those things that have happened. The Bible says they've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Jesus came because there was no other way that a holy, righteous God could take care of the problem of sin. Sin separated us from God, put us under the condemnation and curse. And we could not pay that price because we're sinners. So he sent Jesus for you. And I'm speaking to you who don't know Jesus yet. You haven't gotten right with God. Your conscience is still nagging at you, if you will. And by the way, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the, the, the whisper of God to you. So that Jesus came to die for your sin. He came to pay the price for the penalty that you face. And so in having borne your sin, Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, God has provided for you forgiveness, righteousness. Be right with him just by believing the gospel putting your faith in Jesus Christ and there is no other. So there's three things I'm going to ask you to do. Very simple. First, to raise up your hand and say, I need to get right with God this morning. Most important decision you will ever make to say yes to Jesus, yes to the gospel. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up because it's, that Jesus said, and it's important, if you confess me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. When you stand, it's in being obedient to God, being obedient to the gospel. And when you make that that statement you stand today with us God will wipe away all the excuses all the fears and wipe away all your sin all your guilt all your shame and you will in obeying the gospel will be freed from all the things that have been holding you back from making this very important decision so I'm going to ask you to stand up and then walk up to the tables on the side where someone will pray with you so as we're praying my friends my brothers and sisters in the Lord as we're praying if that's you this morning just raise up your hand. I want to acknowledge you and keep it up for a moment so I don't miss you. You're saying, you're raising your hand to God and saying, I want to get right with God this morning. I want the blood of Jesus Christ to be applied to my life. And God's penalty taken care of for me. That's you. Just raise up your hand. We're waiting. We're praying. say this just in one more because it's so urgent the message you don't know how much longer you have that that's an urgent message that's what makes the gospel so urgent but yet so important so powerful the one more if that's you you just just your hand up and we're going to continue 
And I think it's fitting in light of the message this morning that we worship God and thank Him with all of our hearts in worship and song for what He accomplished for us on the cross. And worship Him. And then if there's anything that you are wrestling with and have been going on in your conscience before God, you need it cleansed right now as we worship. And I also want to encourage you you're having some troubles. It might not have anything to do with sin at all. It might be there's things going on in your life and, and you're just a little overwhelmed today. That's why we have these people over here to pray for you. They'll pray for you before God. That's how, that's how, how amazing it is. As you stand there with them, you're going to be before a holy God. And the Bible says we can come to Him at throne of grace and find help to not, in time of need. So someone wants to pray with you, not only will they pray for you here, they'll pray for you this whole week. So if that's you, as we're going to stand together and sing this last song, make your way to the table either during it or after so the Lord may encourage you and strengthen you before you leave today. So let's sing this song together. Stand as you feel that.